the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, sir, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome to this final day of the month of October, the Tuesday Halloween edition of Lifeline, that we may not scare you. Some of the news we report on today certainly may. A little bit later on in our first segment of tonight's program, we'll be joined by Brad Dacus. He'll give us an update on student privacy. That's coming up a little bit later on. Also, Janet Forge, or, uh, sorry, Janet Porter. I'll kind of try to meld her maiden name in there. Janet Porter is going to join us to talk about House Resolution 490, the Heartbeat Protection Act. And later on, we'll meet a man whose life was incredibly changed by an experience with a homeless man. Details on that. But first, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio now indicating that fully eight people are dead in an act of terror in lower Manhattan, while more than a dozen are injured. De Blasio called it an especially cowardly act and urged New Yorkers to be vigilant on Halloween night and in the days to come. De Blasio emphasized that the investigation of the attack continues to be underway under the shadow of the World Trade Center. Securities, of course, are now tightened at the scene where several people were killed in this incident in lower Manhattan. NBC News correspondent Savannah Guthrie was near the scene when the carnage unfolded. There's a ton of police activity, um, and this is a, a very kind of residential area of Tribeca. I can tell you I was just about to pick up my daughter from school and take the kids trick-or-treating. This is um, an area that would have been filled with kids leaving school. In fact, I, I um, my pastor's um, son goes to school right here at PS89, PS289, and he, I, I was told by his mom that he heard gunshots and ran all the way home. Um, oh, now, that's all I know at this point, like an active team. WNBC is now calling this an act of Islamic terrorism, reporting eight people dead, 15 injured in lower Manhattan after a rented truck from Home Depot slammed into several bicyclists. Witness Eugene Duffy says he heard some noise close to him when the incident unfolded. I hear nine to ten gunshots, and that's when I dug out of the way, and all the police, you know, came running towards where I was, not knowing what's going on. They don't know what happened. You know, they're just as much confused as I was. I see a yellow school bus that this truck clearly crashed into, and then he crashed into another car because, and on the yellow school bus, there was a few adults on there. It looked intentional. You know, when I saw it, I looked, I see the car in a bike lane. It's three in the afternoon. Who drives in a bike lane? A suspect in the attack is now being reported as an Islamic immigrant identified as Saifulo Saipov, an Uzbekistan national who entered the United States in 2010. This is her first such a terrorist attack to be pulled off successfully in New York City in more than six years. 
We urge you at this moment as they continue to not only tend to the dozen people injured in all of this, but uh, begin the long process of trying to unwind what happened today, to be in prayer for the family members of the deceased and those dozen victims who still remain hospitalized. And if we get more information into the KFAX newsroom throughout our broadcast tonight, we'll certainly keep you up to date. All right, speaking of up-to-date, let's talk about what's going on with the public school system here in California. Many campuses are so-called closed campuses. That's done in an effort to try and protect students from prying eyes and uh, those that would have nefarious activities at heart when entering into a closed high school campus. But apparently, a closed campus is not what takes place down in Southern California. We've got a look now at the recent activities at Fresno High School and ponder the question, why would students be given unfettered access to a member of the press, in particular a member of the press asking very probing private questions and then releasing the story using their real names? Joining us now to unravel this mystery is constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. And, Counselor, my understanding is normally, number one, rarely are outsiders allowed on any high school campus in California for safety and security reasons. That's logical. But to find in this case where the Fresno Bee was apparently given unfettered access to students at uh, Fresno High, and the reporter was able to go in and ask some fairly probing, very personal private questions that wound up associated with their names in the press seems as if somebody here doesn't understand California law by a long shot. What happened? Right. Uh, These reporters, we found out, uh, didn't just sort of sneak on campus. Uh, No, they were were welcomed, invited. The school district of high school knew who they were, what their purpose was, and said, go ahead. And so they asked these uh, very intrusive uh, questions dealing with uh, sexual uh, practices and uh, LGBTQ-related uh, questions, um, even questions about, are you aware of your rights to uh, go to Planned Parenthood, you know, to have an abortion, or uh, you know, those kinds of, cu- kinds of uh, questions. It's the kinds of questions that, number one, invade tremendous privacy, but number two, um, violate federal law, state law, and are also a clear breach of public trust with regards to uh, the parents. And then even mentioning the minors' names uh, is, uh, is also... Uh, highly suspect and, and entitled to uh, deserving of an investigation, uh, not only of, the, of the, the reporters and the newspaper, but more importantly of this school district and uh, and and, uh, and and who was responsible, and then what policies they're going to take uh, to prevent this from happening again, uh, absent the need for a lawsuit. Uh. Clearly, I mean, and again, I'm kind of at a loss for words here, trying to understand what would go through the mind of the administration to think that this was an okay idea, uh, not only in terms of opening up the campus to the press, but then opening up the campus to the press to tackle subjects that are of uh, this level of sensitivity. And it's not like they went around, you know, polling students as to what their favorite Halloween candy was, but asking them whether or not they engage in sexual relationships, and if so, what's sort and then publish that next to their names in the newspaper? I mean, really? These are minors. Exactly. And I want people to understand, this wasn't just for the senior class. This was down to the age of 14. 
uh, freshman class and in specifically the age of 14. Uh, so it is um, highly objectionable. Uh, this was done without uh, uh, prior notice to parents, without opportunity for parents to opt their children out of it, as required by federal law, a uh, violation of, of, of uh, privacy. Uh, it is, uh, it, it's, it's very, very serious. And we have uh, put the, we at Pacific Justice Institute, put the school district on notice uh, that number one, they need to investigate, have a thorough and satisfactory investigation. Number two, they need to take appropriate uh, measures uh, in response to that, uh, the results of that investigation. And number three, they need to uh, adopt uh, the proper policies uh, and procedures needed uh, to, uh, to remedy this from ever happening again. Their failure to do so uh, will um, possibly what likely result in uh, litigation where they will lose all federal funds pursuant to their violation of the federal statute uh, dealing with this. Well, and you know, as any police officer will tell you when you get pulled over for speeding, gee, officer, I didn't realize I was going, you know, 90 in a 25 zone. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. So aside from enjoining them not to um, act in a similar fashion again, uh, is there potential liability here for the district, given the fact that they have violated the student's privacy in such a public fashion? Uh, potentially, uh, potentially. And uh, we at Pacific Justice are holding all of our litigation cards very close uh, to, uh, to make the determination in, in the end uh, whether or not it, the actions of the school district satisfy uh, the concerns and, um, of the parents and the students involved. Um, it's, you know, this is, um, this is a major broadside uh, violation of, uh, of the law, and uh, if, if it's you know, if the Fresno School District, Unified School District, doesn't take this uh, seriously and appropriately, um, they will be, they will pay the price one way or the other. And, and I guess uh, there's another layer here when we have to help educate our children. Uh, when we say don't talk to sta- strangers, that includes strangers that show up carrying press badges, I suppose. Right. Exactly. In places like uh, public schools, where we the people are relying on government employees, government schools, taxpayer-funded institutions... Uh, to uh, to abide by the law and uh, to treat it seriously when the law is is, is violated and uh, that is uh, most disturbing. This could happen anywhere at any school district, and if it does, any parents should contact Pacific Justice Institute immediately. Uh, that's what we're here for. We're the parents' advocate, and uh, for times like this. And you know, again, for listeners that have tuned in late, so the press, in this case, the the Fresno Bee, was granted unprecedented access to a high school campus and allowed to interact with students and engage students in interviews that included asking uh, very private questions concerning their um, sexual behavior, their beliefs on sexual matters, etc., etc., and then having obtained all of that information, printed the responses next to the names, and these conversations were all taking place with minors and all got printed in the public newspaper. There are so many levels of how this is wrong. Uh, it would, it would. Uh, well, my blood pressure can't handle it, so we'll leave it at that. Our thanks to Brad Dakis, constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. And uh, as Brad mentions, if you ever run into this, you hear your student come home reporting odd things, first remind them, don't talk to strangers. That includes the press. And number two, and I say that as a member of the press, and number two, If something like this ever comes up, you need to get on the phone to Pacific Justice Institute immediately so that you can exercise protections under the Constitution of your students' right to privacy.
asking minors sexual questions and then printing their responses next to their names in the newspaper? Thank you. Yes, nuts. Absolutely nuts. 615. Get a look at traffic right now. Michael Bennett's got the latest at the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There is probably not a lot of debate amongst people of faith and pro-lifers as to when the moment of life begins. I think most of us would argue at the moment of conception. But, of course, therein kind of lies the rub that protractors from the other side would say, well, no, not necessarily, and there's issues of viability, and on and on the list goes. So finally, then, we're gaining some groundwork here when we can say, okay, if you'd like to have the viability argument, then why don't we do this? Let's agree that life begins at the sound of a heartbeat. I think most reasonable people would accept that. Well, if that be the case, then, we've got some good news tonight on progress concerning House Resolution 490, the Heartbeat Protection Act. It's going to be going before a House Judiciary Committee hearing that will take place um, tomorrow, in fact, at 11.30 a.m. And to get all the details on progress on this measure, we're joined by Janet Porter. She, of course, is the president of Faith to Action and is the originator of the Heartbeat Bill. And Janet, always a delight to have you on the program. Thank you so much. So glad to be here with you, Craig. Let's talk about um, the premise behind this bill. And I think it's a simple one for most of us to understand. And that is as much as we may want to argue about the precise moment when life is really life. It seems as if, as I suggested in my opening remarks, most thinking people can come to the agreement, come to the conclusion that if there is the presence of a heartbeat, there's a good time for us to say that this is a viable life. Yeah, we're not saying it's necessarily the beginning of life. Uh, it's not. As you mentioned, conception is that beginning of life. But while we want to protect babies from conception, and the pink horn hat marchers want to abort them till birth, we can at least all agree that, that we have a scientific solution that the majority of America supports, and that's the heartbeat bill. And how do I know that? Well, we took out a poll from George Barna this year, and we found that 7 out of 10 in America favor the heartbeat bill, that believe that if a doctor is able to detect the heartbeat in an unborn child, that child should be legally protected. And here's the, here's the kicker, Craig. I hope you're sitting down, because not only do we have 86% of Republicans who believe that, not only do 61% of independents believe that, but you ready? 55% of Democrats favor the heartbeat bill. And this bill, as we stated, will protect every child whose heartbeat can be heard. So if you want to say what the bill is in one sentence, it simply ensures that if a heartbeat's detected, the baby's protected. And this, I think, will also help to cut through and eliminate a lot of the squabbling, because oftentimes we hear, and and this is a particularly effective tool used by um, those who have a financial stake in abortion, Planned Parenthood, NARAL at all, that would love just to see this go on unfettered, under, with no conditions whatsoever, forever. Uh, they they try to say, well, you people are taking at this uh, the approach of faith, and we're rather approaching this from a matter of fact, as if this is an argument or a disagreement between religion on one side and science on the other. When in reality, what the heartbeat bill does is says, okay, we're gonna we're gonna remove from the conversation all of the faith matters and talk simply science. That's right. To deny the fetal heartbeat is to deny science. 
And these are people that are running from technology to support their position, to run from science. You know, they talk a lot about global warming and science. Well, look, you know, these are the science deniers who oppose the heartbeat bill. And to, 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 to ignore the heartbeat is heartless. So, so, you know, that's what we're faced with, that you either acknowledge Look, this is the universal indicator that we acknowledge in every other human being. In hospitals across the country, we all know that the monitors in hospitals are not there for decoration. We've never been to a funeral with somebody with a beating heart. We're talking about a fellow human being that we should no longer ignore the SOS signal that they're sending out with each heartbeat. This is, a, this is a, an indicator, a scientific indicator that we apply everywhere else. Let's quit discriminating against the very young and apply it here, too, so that um, we recognize that, that that same signal that's being sent that we recognize in every other circumstance. So it's a great opportunity for Congress to say, you know what, we're, gonna, we're going to apply human rights and civil rights to other members of the human family whose rights are being ignored. And it's exciting uh, to see that not only do we have a hearing, a congressional hearing, but we've got 170 let uh, uh, congressmen, legislators, names on this bill. That's seventy percent of the Republican caucus. That's almost the votes we need to pass it. So we've got great momentum. We've got a big hearing coming up, a, a press conference to follow, and I believe that the, the world is going to hear about the babies beating hearts. You know, we've all seen the bumper stickers, Craig. It says abortion stops a beating heart, but with HR four ninety, with the heartbeat bill, a beating heart will stop abortion. And that's something to cheer about. If you're a pro-lifer that's been hope-deferred and heart-sick for 44 years, guess what? We are closer than we've ever been to seeing children protected. And this bill, according to the late Dr. Jack Wilkie, the founder of the pro-life movement, he said this bill will protect 90 to 95 percent of the babies who face abortion that would otherwise be aborted. So what we're talking about is saving the population of the city of Atlanta every year, twice. So we're talking about real protection for nearly a million children every year, and it's the bill being heard in Congress tomorrow. That's that's exciting news if you're a pro-life. Absolutely. And I think, too, in terms of getting passage, there are provisions inside of this bill that do allow for exceptions. And I'm, I'm encouraged by this because the exceptions that are specifically articulated in this bill relate to the potential threat to the life of the mother. But here's what I like. This is physical protection. This doesn't rise to the to the to the sleight of hand game that's been played pr- with previous so-called written protections that would include psychological or emotional. Am I correct? That's right. It's so, uh, with the exception of the, the life of the mother or the physical health. So it's it's not dealing with emotional issues as we've seen in other bills that pretend to be pro-life. Now this one's the real deal. This one's going to save lives. It's going to inform women and spare a whole lot of people from heartache that abortion has, has really uh, reaped re- re- on this land. That it's, just, it's, just, it's, it's absolutely an exciting moment. And a lot of people say, well, you know, the time's not right. Or, you know, maybe we should regulate abortion more or, or pass the, uh, or, you know, work on, on, on the bills that protect a fraction of a percent of people. No, no, no. We have a Republican House, a Republican Senate, Republican White House, we have a new Supreme Court being ushered in with pro-life judges. This is the moment. We've got a vice president that's vowed to send Roe versus Wade to the ash heap of history. If we don't protect children now, then when will we ever? 
And so this is our moment. This is our opportunity. And uh, we had the opportunity to meet with the vice president uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he said that he loves the heartbeat bill. Not surprisingly, the man who said he wants to send Roe to the ash heap of history realizes we might just have a way to do that. What uh, is also encouraging about this bill, and I hope it will silence uh, some of the uh, the flapping lips of the likes of, you know, Cecile Richards and all that camp, and, and typically it's, well, you just want to put women in jail. That's all you want to do. This bill specifically excludes women. So if a woman undergoes a prohibited abortion, they cannot be prosecuted for violating or, quote-unquote, conspiring to violate the provisions of this bill. So I think we can take courage from that, that there's hopefully enough about this bill that will help silence a lot of the traditional objectors. Yes, uh, we view the women as the second victim. Uh, In fact, what we have, a testimony that will be submitted tomorrow uh, from a a post-aborted woman, a woman who's had abortions, and her heartbreaking story is, is basically if she had heard her baby's heartbeat and known that their ba- her baby had a heartbeat, that she'd have two children today uh, instead of two abortions that have, have devastated her life. And this is, this is the case. We found that with uh, women all over us. We went around the states with heartbeat laws. It's, it's something that, that women are suffering um, because their hearts are broken um, and their baby's hearts were stopped. But this bill will protect children and, uh, and their moms from uh, from what abortion has done to them and it's 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 just a it's an exciting bill it's a positive bill it's a bill that uh, i believe it's time has come it's a scientific bill uh and it's one that happens to be supported by a whole lot of people not just in the country but in the congress as well and it's it's um it's going to be a good day tomorrow so if you can't make it across the country to uh, to join us in the hearing um then uh, then what we'd like you to do is is pray um you can uh, we're going to see if we can get the, uh, the hearing, I understand, will be live-streamed from Congress, and uh, so that's something you may be able to watch it, um, or at least see the clips uh, on our website at f2a.org. F like faith, the number two, a like action.org. And again, those uh, hearings will be taking place tomorrow, 11.30 a.m. East Coast time in um, the uh, the House Judiciary Committee, and we encourage you, as Janet mentions, to uh, to be in prayer for those participants in that hearing, and uh, for those that we need to communicate to to get more support behind HR 490. And uh, hopefully, in the coming days and weeks, we'll get some good news and get more progress reports as well. There's Janet Folger, President of Faith to Action, Faith Number Two Action dot org. We're here at five thirty. Let's get a look at traffic. And the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center, Michael Bennett. What's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to turn a corner here to a topic that I think we're all pretty familiar with. In fact, we've heard a lot about it in the press, and maybe you even had some experiences or seen them at a distance. I'm talking, of course, about homelessness. And we've all heard the statistics, X number of kids sleep in cars, X X number of adults in doorways, X number die from exposure every year. It no doubt, I hope, as a person of faith, strikes a chord with you. But maybe if you're like most people, not much of one, at least not until it happens to us or until we get to know someone affected by homelessness. Notice I didn't say just meet. I mean, really get to know someone. Well, that's exactly what Ron Hall did. 
and he details his experiences inside the pages of a New York Times best-selling book called Same Kind of Different as Me, soon to be a spectacular film of the same title. And Ron, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us. And thank you, Craig. And just a quick update. Yes, our th- our film opened uh, Friday, uh, October the 20th, uh, nationwide. So it is uh, now a spectacular film that's in theaters all across America. Well, that's good to hear. And, of course, we want to urge listeners to uh, to really take a moment and watch that heartwarming film. It's got a, a great cast of characters in it. Uh, Greg Kinnear is in it, Renee Zellweger, uh, John Voight. And the story really, in many respects, follows the, the chronicling that you do in the book that you co-wrote with, frankly, the gentleman's kind of the theme of this entire story, a Denver, um, who essentially crossed your path in an unlikely set of circumstances, a lot of which, <laughs> I, as I recall, kind of harkens back to some challenges that you were facing in your own marriage. Well, uh, yes, I was trying to put back a marriage. My wife and I were both trying to put back a marriage after my uh, bout with infidelity. But um, she was a very godly woman, and I was a believer, but uh, was, was was not on the uh, path, walking the path, uh, you know, with God at that time. I was, I was chasing hard after money and got caught up in just my own uh, self-importance and... Um, and this just, uh, I don't know, I made a deliberate decision to destroy a marriage, and but a godly wife uh, threw my sin as far as the East is from the West and promised she would never bring it up again if I would only promise not to do that again. And so I, at that moment, I said, honey, I will absolutely take you on, up on that offer. And, and what, not only I will do anything you ask me the rest of our lives together, I just didn't realize that it wasn't long after that that she was going to ask me to be friends with a homeless man who always threatened to kill everybody. Yeah, you have to be careful about what you promised. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's it's interesting because, as you indicate, uh, there were missteps. A lot of it, as you suggest, Ron, came from your focus on, I think, a lot of us who, who, who struggle with um, not being number one. We're used to being number one. We kind of enjoy being number one. And so... Uh, chasing the the bigger cars, the bigger house, um, the bigger bank account, and all of that for a lot of people is is what life seems to be all about. You had a successful career in Fort Worth as an art dealer there, got caught up in some indiscretions, as you indicate. So your wife's deal of hey, uh, we got to work on getting closer together, and how about maybe a little bit of a a common burden or a common goal that we can work on, and that found the two of you working together at a homeless shelter. Tell us about your first encounter then with Denver. Well, <clears throat> the reason we we actually went there, Craig, is that she had a literal dream that she believed was from God. And she said to me the next morning, Ron, it's, uh, I had a dream about a poor man who was wise. It was like a verse in Ecclesiastes where Solomon wrote, there was found in the city a certain poor man who was wise, and by his wisdom, our city would be changed. And she said, and I believe he has a message for us, and our lives will be changed as well if we can find him. So that's what uh, prompted us to uh, begin our journey into the inner city haunts of the homeless, and uh, it was a quite, quite a scary place to, to be. And uh, 
anyway, we began driving around there the first day uh, looking for this man of her dream, and we didn't see him. So by the end of the day, we decided to volunteer at a homeless shelter. Oh, I'd say we decided. I'm saying she decided that we would volunteer without ever asking me. And uh, so anyway, um, actually, when I went in there, I, I, I was germaphobic, or at least I was at the time. And I asked the uh, manager or chef uh, that was preparing an evening meal, and I said, hey, are there any infectious diseases floating around this place? And he uh, said, oh, absolutely. We tried to infect them all with love. <laughs> thought, oh, man, what have I gotten myself into? This smart aleck guy is trying to make me feel bad about myself. But anyway, uh, you know, we'd been there a couple of weeks serving the evening meal when all of a sudden uh, in breaks into the this guy breaks into the uh, dining hall uh and he starts screaming at the top of his lungs i'm going to kill whoever done it i'm going to kill whoever stole my shoes and my wife starts saying that's him that's him and i said that's who she said that's the man i had the dream about and then she told me she said and i believe i heard from god that you have to be his friend ron and find out if my dream is really from god and I said, but honey, I was into that meeting you had with God. If I'm going to be friends with someone who's threatening to kill everybody, I think I should go talk to God myself. So <laughs> that's how we uh, we got started. But I asked the guy that was standing next to me on the serving line, I said, who is that crazy man? He said, nobody knows his name, but he's been on the streets longer than anyone could ever remember. And she, they, he said he rules the streets with fear and intimidation. And most people just call him suicide because messing with him, is the equivalent of committing suicide. And he said, if he's dangerous and he's crazy, you ought to stay away from him because he'll hurt you. You've got to, at this point, Ron, be thinking to yourself, what am I getting myself into? I mean, it's clear that you (laughs) loved your wife, Debbie, that you wanted to take the necessary steps to, to reconcile and to bring about healing in your marriage. She had certain conditions, albeit perhaps unusual ones, but in conditions <laughs> nevertheless that I think were, were, were clearly God-honoring ones. And suddenly you find yourself having gone from, I just want to not get you know kicked out of the house or served with divorce papers, to suddenly yeah. being here working in a homeless shelter and having an encounter with a man that, I don't know, perhaps at arm's distance, as we see characterized in the film, might be a little bit on the schizophrenic side. Certainly somebody who spent a life on the streets, who doesn't have the uh, the most refined manners in public, and your <laughs> wife is telling you, that's the man that God yeah. told me you need to be friends with. Wow. That was the man in her dream, she said, so... Well, and, and uh, you know, it was uh, – I, I was just willing to write a check to get out of there and, uh, and build them a whole new mission if they needed it because at the time I was wealthy enough to have done that. But, uh, uh, you know, that wasn't going to be the easy way out for me, and she said I would be uh, – we would be volunteering there, and we would continue to do so until further notice. Mm. And that, that began uh, a, a new adventure for me. I uh, You know, I had spent most of my life, I was an international art dealer and traveled the world buying and selling a lot of very important uh, works of art to uh, museums and and large collectors, and I visited many beautiful homes and collections. And so, you know, being stuck in a smelly old homeless shelter was the last place on earth that I wanted to be. And uh, But, you know, God had a different idea for me, and he was about to repaint the canvas of my life and rewrite my life story. 
Let's take a time out because I want, don't want to interrupt you, Ron, when you pivot to your first encounter with Denver Moore and eventually the friendship that grows between, quite frankly, two men from their very different worlds, and yet God brings together for one very common purpose. Ron Hall is with us tonight. Ron is the co-author of the New York Times best-selling book, Same Kind of Different as Me, published by Thomas Nelson. The new film, as we mentioned, has been newly released by the same name, Same Kind of Different as Me. It's showing in theaters across America, even as we speak. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. Let's get a look at traffic right now, the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center with Michael Bennett. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Interesting timing on that. The Bay Area Rescue Mission, of course. Now, they are a group of people that since 1965 have known what homelessness looks like and have taken important steps to address it. Ron Hall knows what homelessness looks like and the impact that it can have on an individual. Ron, tell us about your first encounter then with Denver Moore. Well, um, after the first day when he threatened to kill everybody in the room and then the security guards dragged him out of there, at the insistence of my wife, Debbie, uh, she asked me every morning before I would go to my art gallery uh, or to my ranch, I was kind of dividing my time between the two of them, uh, she would ask me to go take a drive through the inner city and just see if I couldn't get him in my car to uh, find out what his story is or was and, and find out if to if that story and, and, and his wisdom, you know, really matched up with her literal dream that she believed was from God. But And so I did. I uh, Every morning I would take a drive right in the inner city, and usually I would see him because he lived by a dumpster uh, near the mission, uh, near the homeless mission, which is a rescue mission, uh, just like the one in the Bay Area. And... Um, and, but he would see my car or my truck pull in, and he would take off back in the woods, what they call the hobo jungle. And uh, so I would report that I had seen him. And uh, But anyway, it took me five months to get him in my car. And uh, that's a long story. If you read the book, same kind of different as me, you would know it's a roller coaster ride that ended up with him in my car one morning. And uh, so we went to get some breakfast, and I found out that he had grown up on a plantation in Louisiana in the late 30s and uh, or, through the, through the 1940s, and, and uh, when he was 16 years old, uh, he was roped and dragged by the Ku Klux Klan for helping a white woman change a flat tire on the plantation. And on that day, uh, the Klan extracted a promise from him that he would never again uh, look a white person in the eye or, or ever speak to a white woman. And, uh, and he had he was 62 years old when I met him, and he had been out of prison at that point for 25 years. And he was a very, very uh, damaged, psychologically uh, uh, very damaged man, and, uh, and spoke to no one, didn't talk to anybody. Uh, he was just a, a loner and, uh, and what people considered crazy, except uh, he was also an enforcer of, of uh, if anyone else tried to beat up someone that was uh, – weaker than them uh, he would extract justice with his baseball bat on him so he was he was considered crazy but he was also schizophrenic so but uh anyway that's uh, uh when i get him in the car you know he asked me he says what is it you want from me and i said hey man i just want to be your friend and he looked at me with this incredulous look and he said you want to be my friend and i said that's it and uh you know i was just actually 
lying to him at that point because I was just doing that to please my wife Debbie to, to you know fulfill this promise I'd made to her. But uh, when he said he would think about it, I'll tell you, it just came all over me. I thought, hey, buddy, you looked a gift horse in the mouth because you don't know who I am and how rich I am and what I can do for you. I can get you clothes, a car, apartment. I can even buy you a house or anything that you want. And you're just kind of a, you, an idiot, I would think, to not want to be my friend and just jump all, all over this opportunity. But I was, I was so arrogant, Craig. I couldn't believe he had anything to offer me in a friendship. But if he behaved himself, uh, that I would bless him uh, with enough things to uh, make it worth his while to be my friend. Of course, the absolute irony behind all of this is, and I don't want to give away too much of the plot line of the book nor the movie, and again, the movie is now available in theaters nationwide, same kind of different as me, but the, the intention here to follow through on your promise to your wife... And I'm sure there was a design both from the viewpoint of yourself and Debbie that the two of you were going to minister to this gentleman and, and hopefully give to him to help help him in any way that God would leave you to. And yet in the end, it seems like there was uh, there was a lot of giving going on and a lot of it was coming from him, actually. Well, it was because, uh, you know, about two weeks later after that breakfast meeting, I saw him taking trash out of a dumpster, feeding the wild animals on the street and and he got him, I asked him to go get some coffee with me. So we go to Starbucks and we're sitting there and he says, I've been thinking a lot about what you asked me. And I said, what did I ask you that required any thought? He said, well, you asked me if I'd be your friend. And I said, uh, well, I sure did. So what do you think about that? He said, well, there's something I heard about white folks that really bothers me and it's got to do with fishing. And I said, well, you know, Denver, I'm not a fisherman. I'm, I'm a, a, an art dealer and a cowboy, but uh, I don't even own a rod and reel or a tackle box, so I don't know if I can answer your question. He said, oh, I bet you can. And so I said, okay, what is it? He said, well, I heard when white folks go fishing, they do this thing they call catch and release. And I just started laughing, and I said, well, Denver, of course they do. It's a sport. You don't get it? He said, no, sir, I sure don't get it. He said, because back on the plantation, we'd go out in the morning, we'd dig us a can full of worms, cut us a cane pole, sit on the riverbank, and when we got something on our line, we were really proud of what we caught, and we'd take it back to the plantation and share it with all the folks. And he said, so it occurred to me, if you're just a white man fishing for a friend, and you're going to catch and release, then I ain't got no desire to be your friend. Wow. Boy, there's wisdom. There's wisdom. That's when my mind flashed back to Debbie's dream of a poor man who was wise, because that was singly the most wise thing I'd ever heard on friendship. And, uh, you know, I knew if I ever heard from God, it was at that moment. I, said, I had to take a chance, and I said, okay, Denver, I'll be your friend. And uh, and we began this life-changing friendship where he became my professor. I was his very eager student. In fact, Craig, one of the first days I was sitting with him on the curb of uh, by the dumpster, and I was entering his classroom, I guess, <laughs> as the cars and trucks were passing by. And uh, he asked me, he said, are you one of them Christians? And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, well, can you tell me why all you Christians worship one homeless man on Sunday and turn your back on the first one you see on Monday? I said, no, Denver, I can't. He said, Mr. Ron, you never know whose eyes God is watching you out of. And he said, it ain't going to be your preacher or your Sunday school teacher. He said, it might be a fellow that looks like me. He said, now it ain't me, but it might be a fellow that looks just like me. And God's just checking you out to see uh, what kind of person you are. He said, you know, uh, all you folks think that the homeless is a problem? He said, but let me tell you, God sees it as an opportunity 
for the faithful to show the love of Christ. You know, Ron, I've been involved with ministry to the homeless here in the Bay Area for many, many years, and that is the first time I've heard that statement in such a way that I think would cause all of us to pause, that we worship a homeless man on Sunday and then turn our backs on the first one we see on Monday. Wow. I mean, not only the depth of how profound that is, but how close to home, I think, that cuts for so many of us. Yeah. You know, he told me, he looked at me, and he pointed at me, and he said, well, whether we's rich, and he was pointing right at me, and then he pointed back at himself, and he said, whether we's rich or whether we's poor or something in between, he said, this earth ain't no final resting place. He said, so in a way, we all homeless, just working our way home. Hmm. The title of the book is actually something that uh, Denver came up with it, isn't it? Yes, he did. <laughs> he did. He sure did. He was uh, speaking at Debbie's uh, memorial service. Um, it was, uh, he, he actually told me five months into our friendship that he said, what Miss Debbie is doing for the homeless in Fort Worth, Texas, she has become precious to God. He said, when you become precious to God, you become important to Satan. He said, watch your backside, something bad getting ready to happen to Miss Debbie. And uh, three days later, she was diagnosed with cancer and given only three to five months to live. But the good news is she, she lived 19 months. But during this 19 months, the man that I thought had nothing to offer me in a friendship stayed on his knees all night long, talking and praying to God. And he would knock on our door the next morning and bring us a fresh, relevant message that he heard from God in the night. I'll tell you, I used to marvel at how God chose the homeless, most dangerous man on the streets of Fort Worth to be the one who encouraged us the very most during the darkest 19 months of our lives. And isn't it true, Ron, that you just simply have no idea? I mean, even for those of us that look at uh, the homeless situation and, and wish to give and make a difference and volunteer and donate and do all that we that we do, at the end of the day, I think largely we think that we are the ones doing the ministering, not realizing that God, in the bigger picture that he has about foot, in his greater, grander design that is far bigger and larger than any of us will ever be able to comprehend that at the end of the day, there's a whole lot of ministry going on. It's just not always in the direction that we think it's going. Exactly. And a lot of people that don't know this story or haven't seen the movie or haven't read the book think it's a white savior that I went in and saved this African-American man. And there could be nothing farther from the truth than that. He saved me from myself. He, he taught me things I could never possibly learn, even from uh, even from the Bible, you know, I just, he taught me pra- in practical ways how God works in mysterious ways. And, uh, and he saved my family. He saved my marriage. He saved my uh, relationship with my father and all of these things. He led my father to Christ, my racist father that hated him. He ended up with me leading him to Christ when he was 90 years old. And the man who grew up and was trained We'll say it that way, was trained to hate white people. In the end, God used to do the greatest ministry to the very object of his hatred and anger. And we're reminded in Scripture how God uses 
the things of this world to confound the wise. It is a compelling story. It is one that will set you back on your heels and one that I would encourage you not only to read, but now go see. It's called Same Kind of Different as Me. It's published by Thomas Nelson. Again, longtime New York Times bestselling book by authors Ron Hall and uh, co-authored, of course, by Denver Moore. Now the story on the big screen. We mentioned uh, Greg Kinnear, Renee Zellweger, John Voigt, and... um, Talk to us about, if you would, just briefly, Ron, before our time winds up, the actor who plays Denver Moore here. Well, that is Jaiman Hansu, who was nominated for an Oscar in Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio, and also in another, he starred in Amistad and Gladiator. He was nominated for another Oscar uh, in in, uh, working or uh, coming to America. But uh, he was, came from Africa as a refugee landing in France and was homeless for a year on the streets of France before he was discovered by Calvin Klein to become an underwear model, very famous model <laughs> back in the early 90s. And that led him to his first role in, in film. But uh, he is one of the most extraordinary uh, actors ever. And we've had uh, several uh, critics who love this film said that he deserves an Oscar for his performance as my late friend Denver Moore. And Jaiman Hansu certainly brings so much life to to the role and to the story. And we appreciate, Ron, you continuing to breathe life into the story of your experiences with Denver and the way in which God um, set out in this very special mission, uh, thinking that, uh, I guess, at a level you were going to minister to him and God had a whole other plan going on. Same kind of different as me, the best-selling book, now a wonderful film available in the theaters, and we invite you to check it out. Same kind of different as me.com. Our thanks to Ron Hall, co-author of this wonderful book and uh, the subject of this new film for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. 602, let's get a look at traffic again. The latest from the KFAX Traffic Center with Michael Bennett. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.